You're listening to a DM podcast. I've got a couple of golden rules, really, when you're starting out and when you know that you might have enough like to do a podcast. So you've got to do a lot of, I think, preliminary work. And as a phrase, sort of off-coined, is you've got to secure your talent. Okay, so that means you've got to get buy-in. You've got to know that there's people who are from a number of perspectives on this story are going to play ball and, and participate. So you've got nothing if you don't have them. No one wants to listen to me read press clippings or, you know, Wikipedia. You want the people who lived it to talk, don't you? That's what's entertaining. Welcome to Behind the Podcast and to our final episode looking into the true crime genre. Today, we're talking to award-winning journalist Richard Baker from The Last Voyage of the Pong Su, Phoebe's Fall and Bronx Skin. This one is a bit of a lesson in how technology can fail you. Richard is based in Melbourne, we're based in Sydney, so we recorded this one remotely and chose the middle of a lightning storm to do so, rendering our internet completely useless. Richard was an absolute gun though and managed to give us a lot of patience while we were sorting out our tech issues, but also some really great insights into making a series like The Last Voyage of the Pong Su. Let's get started. Richard, can you tell us a little bit about The Last Voyage of the Pong Su? Last Voyage of the Pong Su, you know, great tale of adventure. It's about a, a big North Korean um, cargo ship um, with about 30 sailors and two other suspicious blokes on it and 150 kilos of heroin that sort of navigates its way down through Southeast Asia and rocks up on the um, coast of Victoria uh, at Easter time in 2003 in the worst possible conditions, huge swells on the Great Ocean Road, and then they just embark on this crazy mission to um, land two guys and 150 kilos of the heroin ashore and meet three um, drug syndicate or, or North Korean operatives um, waiting in a deserted car park to then take hold of the gear and distribute it. Um, and little did those guys know, and the people in the Pongsu, that the Australian Federal Police had been tipped off about it um, about 10 days before and uh, were kind of in the vicinity. And yeah, the story, that's the start of the story. Then, you know, it was a, it was a crazy ride for a, about a week after that involved the um, Australian Navy and the uh, SAS getting involved to um, dop a fleeing Pong Su, which was the name of the ship, off the coast of uh, Sydney or further up, actually. So take us back in time before you started podcasting. You initially studied to be a journalist. Can you tell us a bit about that journey? So I was fortunate enough to, to get a cadetship with the age um, straight out of uni. Uh, it, was, it was only a bachelor's degree too, so I won't oversell <laughs> my intellect or academic rigour. But I, I really wanted to get into the craft um, because, you know, there's nothing like doing it rather than, you know, I think that's the best way of learning anything is just by doing. Um, so I got in there at 21 and um, went through the cadetship process and then quickly got put on to our... Um, rural affairs round at the time and me being I had a farming in my background my grandparents and uncles were farmers and, and my uncles still are and um, I you know mum had 50 acres down on the surf coast as well so I was the closest thing you'd get to that at the age which was most of the other people were from North Fitzroy or Brunswick or something like that and uh, that was a great opportunity for me because you get to build your own round and um 
and be your own boss because no one else really knows anything about all that sort of stuff at a big city paper. So yeah, a lot of travel, uh, getting out. And the key then with The Age was a big broadsheet. Um, the Australian's the only broadsheet sort of paper left now, but you know, pictorial's really massive for them. So worked out that if I could choose stories that had unique or really arresting photos, um, I'd get a good run on page one or page three. That boosts your profile, boosts your stories. From there, so I built around into something good and had a lot of fun and made a lot of good contacts on the way. Went up and did some state politics for a couple of years in um, Spring Street in Melbourne. Again, fantastic way to build contacts and cut your teeth across so many areas. How did you find that transition from what you were covering into politics? Oh, pretty good actually, because at that time in Victoria, Jeff Kennett lost the 1999 election largely because of falling out of regional Victoria, fell out of love with him and thought they were being neglected and went to Labor in a really uneasy coalition government with three country independents who were all representing conservative seats. So it was an interesting dynamic. So I did a lot of work in that space anyway, trying to understand why that happened. So it kind of was a good fit at the time because obviously everyone then was enlivened to oh perhaps we should listen to what's going on in the country and oh this guy knows so we'll put him up there sort of thing so it was a good fit and I really enjoyed doing that round and managed to get across some pretty good stories and of course the gangland war was happening down here in Melbourne or the first sort of phase of that too and there was a lot of issues which again have been in the news um, in the last couple of days with um, Nicola Gobbo and, and Lawyer X and stuff and there was a lot of suspicion back at the time then about, you know, police um, corruption and other things, particularly the drug squad and uh, hookups with some of the criminal underworld. So it was a great time. Then I did a bit of travelling overseas and came back uh, to join the AGES investigative team as the sort of youngest, newest member. And then we had our first massive round of redundancies at Fairfax in about 2005. And the whole team that I came in with uh, took a redundancy. So went from being one week the most inexperienced member to the only man standing. So To heading up the whole division. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But um, thankfully, we made some really good hirings. And, uh, you know, not least of all, you know, my good mate Nick McKenzie came in from the ABC. And, you know, he and I did a lot of stuff over 10 years and, and that together as well. And and some other really good journos and it kind of just evolves. And then that, that next 10 year period from you know, 2006 to 2016, which is, I guess, when we get up to podcasting, um, was a great time, incredibly busy. I don't, you know, Nick and I were having a beer about it and a talk the other day and we said that was just, we're on a treadmill, so busy, probably had the energy, you know, the right time of life to do that as well. And that was great, you know, just so many different stories cutting across so many areas of journalism. That's the best bit about investigations. You, you can dip in and dip out of stuff and um, hopefully, you know, make an impact. You've been incredibly successful over that period. Uh, five Walkley Awards, 15 Melbourne Press Club Gold Quill Awards. And everyone looks at Teacher's Pet in May 2018 as sort of the genesis of Australian true crime podcasts, but you are ahead of the game. You had uh, Phoebe's Fall back in October of 2016? Yeah, that was right. Yeah, so we put that out then and really, I think, unless you were in the know here in Australia, most mainstream media wasn't really looking at podcasting too much then and I think it was obviously the success of Serial overseas by, you know, the NPR crowd and Sarah Koenig was a you know just remarkable way of telling a long-form narrative story that took you on a journey and 
Phoebe's fall um, was about the really suspicious death of um, you know a young 24-year-old Melbourne woman in 2010 in uh, the garbage chute of one of the sort of flashiest apartment buildings in in the city, or one that was a, it's an in, insanely crazy spot to be found dead. Anyway, really unusual, and, and the circumstances of her death still have a lot of unanswered questions despite a coronial inquest. And her boyfriend at the time was 20 years, 25 years older and the son of a really prominent Melbourne legal family, which in itself raised some questions about how this, you know, this inquest could be done and the involvement of um, one of the parents in particular in in the the days after Phoebe's body was discovered. So Nick and I had written on that case back in 2011 um, for the paper and the family came to us because, astoundingly, it was looking like at one stage the, the coroner who had the case wasn't even going to have an inquest. And we thought, like, if you're not going to have an inquest into that, well, what would you have an inquest into? You know, there was, there was some you know, quite suspicious circumstances and missing uh, telephones and things like that, that, you know, whilst not pointing directly to one thing or another, certainly needed proper form of inquiry. Certainly raised a bit of suspicion. Absolutely, yeah, and then you know, formed some really uh, good relationships of trust with Phoebe's family and friends. And then one day, I just had this idea that was sitting with me in, um, I think it was about May 2016. I came to work one day and said, "We haven't done this properly, and we need to find a new way to tell this story. Let's do a podcast." And I remember the editor at the time, at the time, Mark Forbes, just looked at me and said, you know, "Really? Okay, um, you think you can do that?" And I said. I don't know, you know, no, probably not, but let's give it a go. And we, we did give it a go and um, the first passes of it were absolutely appalling, like really bad. So we got in some outside help from Siobhan McCure, lady, uh, you know, really good uh, broadcaster and podcaster who I've worked with on, on each of my podcasts since, yeah. and Julie Pizzetti yeah. as well, and um, brought them in as some consultants and... Yeah, we sharpened up our game and uh, another colleague of mine, Michael Batchelard, came in and, and helped with the, you know, one-two dynamic of a, of a host and then a reporter. So that worked well, that format for where we were at at the time with our skills as well, particularly my own um, skills. I was probably still trying to find my voice and you got a lot of advisors in your ear telling you how to sound and the, the last thing I wanted to sound like was a fake was it a bit was it a bit frightening like at that stage given the subject matter of the podcast itself it's not really something that people would tend to cut their teeth on normally maybe they might try like you know shooting the shit with their mates at the pub and trying to be funny you're tackling the death of someone does that put a little bit of extra pressure on it for you absolutely yeah it does because you don't want to do it gratuitously which is which for me is a really big point when talking about true crime podcasts i think that's a real danger of that of the genre that it can just be because there's an audience there and people like the macabre you know sometimes there can be just what, what's the point of doing this particular death or this particular thing you know why are we doing this so you always got to ask yourself those questions and for me this one was there were there were many unanswered questions about it I thought we could flesh that out and the best way of telling this story was from the people who knew and loved um, Phoebe and they went in warts and all knowing that, you know, I said, if we're going to do this, I, I, we can't airbrush, you know, the parts of her life where, where she had some, you know, mental health issues, drugs, drinking, 
relationship things that had to be, you know, all on the table. And her family sort of recognised that, that, you know, you'd be doing her a disservice um, not to. And if it's have any credibility, you've got to, you've got to do that, albeit, you know, as sensitively as you can. And the other big thing there was we learnt that it was really difficult when a family gets a coronial inquest decision that they think is not representative or not based on, on all the evidence. Uh, it was just a nigh on impossible under Victorian law at the time to challenge that and prohibitively expensive and, and no hope really of getting it through the Supreme Court. So we also thought that we could use this as a case study about that and that did lead to um, some legislative change which has sort of freed up the ability to, to mount a challenge somewhat and at, and at lower lower cost. So Yeah, it's a remarkable testament to the success of it. Yeah, well, it went crazy. It went nuts. It was a really popular thing and you know I had a lot of anecdotally just a lot of friends you'd you know go and have a drink with at the bar or you know go to a barbecue and stuff and you know to be fair not everyone was a hardcore age reader or or whatever um but you know people just talked about this and they loved loved it and couldn't get enough and you know really couldn't pump out the six or so episodes fast enough because they took a lot of time to to write and, and do and read because, uh, yeah, delivery wasn't great, took a lot of passes. So, but it turned out really well. And yeah, the reception here, but also just internationally, you know, it, the story, and that's one of the values of podcasting is it, there's no boundaries, no borders. A good story travels. That's why I'm attracted to the format. The Pong Su differs from your first two podcasts, which were cold cases. This one also has living protagonists as part of the story. It was a great cops and robbers story, right, on, on the first level. And once I got access to the AFP, had a, a treasure trove of listening device information from um, uh, a bug they'd installed in the car of the three uh, of the drug couriers who were sent from overseas to receive the heroin at the beach. And those guys obviously didn't know their conversations were being recorded. and Kind of hilariously so at one stage when it's being talked about by them. That's right, yeah. They had a conversation where one of them said, um, you don't think they're listening to us? And, and the more experienced or senior member of the two in the car said, don't be stupid, only the FBI can do that. And that guy, he, he, they knew him then as Chin Kwan Lee. He came from a really hardcore crime syndicate family. In Asia, and it actually just he busted out of jail in Copenhagen a few years before that on another heroin heroin job, and he his insights, you know, in sort of tutoring his less experienced guy in the car were really well, just a great insight into that world, and, and quite funny and and profound. And and the other the, the sort of the, the biggest driver was actually a chance to try and understand North Korea and how it works and what your I guess the notion of choice that we all have in whether we're going to do something or not and consequence it's not the same for them because they don't have the luxury of choice that's the sailors and the guys caught up on that ship if you get told to do this job you do it no questions asked so we wanted to get to know again like how that worked you know and what what these guys were like and uh, again through the evidentiary material we got access to um, we got to to know some of these characters through their, you know, video interviews and processing through immigration and just the little things that stood out to me that humanised the, these people. There was a, a time when that they all had lapel badges of the, the ruling family. I think it was um, yeah. Yeah, Kim Jong 
uh, well, I can't even remember now, Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il, yeah, the senior, and they took his badge off, his lapel badge off him at the police station and placed it face down on the table. And he went ballistic and you could hear him doing that. And he, he said, you have to face it face up. You can't put his face down. I need that. Without it, I will die. That is my heart. I mean, it's, it's amazing. We, we read a quote from you uh, saying your biggest rule in journalism, all stories start and end with people. And I think that sort of shone through in the, in the Pong Su while they were, you know, trying to smuggle heroin, which is most people would say pretty bad into Australia. There was so much respect from all of the people involved in that crew and, and almost an understanding of how they could have got there and certainly from a dictatorship like North Korea, what might drive someone to put them in that situation. I think the way that you're able to pull that out and allow the audience to sympathise was really quite great. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, that was, that, that was our um, ambition, was to be able to sort of tell a multi-layered story. So if you're into cops and robbers and adventure, you know, it delivered that. If you wanted to understand more about North Korea and get a bit of a human drama and some empathy, there was that. And then, yeah, that sort of bigger geopolitical kind of thing as well about the regime, how it raises money. And there was you know, so many so many different points you could go. So it's sort of trying to contain the narrative and, and tie it all up was a real uh, challenge. But, you know, in the course of you know, moving from Phoebe's fall to going through wrong skin, which was a... A really difficult story because it, it was a cold case thing, but then it was about again building trust in a really um, an environment where you know a lot of people weren't and aren't you know media savvy or podcast savvy um, and not being exploitative, and then into the whole world of native title and traditional law, that was a real challenge, and 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 then this was as well. Um, but I guess it was a I guess a mark of the, the little team that you know I've sort of built and like to work with on these things where we've evolved um, and we always like to do things that challenge us in the hope that it challenges the listener and not pick the easier targets and have those stories that can pay off on multiple levels but it's yeah it's it's tricky to get it get it, get it right and you know sometimes we we mightn't get the balances right here or there but um, we try hard. How did you find the story and when did you think it was a podcast? I was familiar with the story, obviously, when the Pong Su sort of, uh, there was some dramatic footage back in 2003 and I come from sort of down that way along or near the Great Ocean Road there and I remember, you know, a lot of people and friends and stuff who still live down there in Lawn and, and other places, um, talking about it at the time and, you know, making the T-shirts and yes. bumper stickers and all of that sort of stuff. It was a really big deal. Um, my sister-in-law was, you know, she was the, the girl in the, the real estate agency that she had, she was a witness in the case because they tried to rent a house off her and just things like that. So I'd always been entertained and intrigued by the story. It's sort of been gnawing away at me and oh, far out. There's a, there's a really good story here. Like it's yeah, you know, it's been done at one level, but we could we could really you know turn this inside out. And the key was getting the um, access to all that AFP um, uh, electronic surveillance information and other things, and then getting the buy-in from you know from Des Appleby, who was the senior investigator there was just fantastic. Got to go to Hong Kong and spend a couple of days with him and interviewing him. His counterpart, Celeste, back in Melbourne was terrific. And then on the other side, you know, Jack Dalziel was a suburban solicitor who felt sorry for these guys and sent them a, a fax or something 
to say you need a lawyer. This yeah. is to the North Korean embassy, yeah. and then two weeks later, these these men in black suits rock up and say, "Did you, did you send this letter?" He was terrific. So one of these things was, I think, one of the things I feel in these things, if it's meant to be, it kind of happens. And then even if, you know, in our last episode, episode ten, where. I got to speak to to Wong, who was the other guy in the dinghy who did survive just before he left Australia from um, immigration detention after he'd served 16 years for heroin. And of course I would have loved to speak to him. I had no idea where he was or what was happening until another guy I knew through journalism who'd been in prison. Yeah. I was having a coffee with him and just telling him about the Pong Sioux and said, you wouldn't happen to come across a few of these guys during your time inside. And... You know, he was their their next door cellmate and helping them with English and and their 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 legal issues and things like that. And you know that 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 nailed it for me in terms of what this was meant to be. That what, was incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you at at when you start out doing it? Do you, are you kind of you've started to put together who you think you might speak to, and work out what the story flow is going to be, and then and then get into it, or do do you sort of let it unfold a bit? Well, you've got, to, you've got to have both. You've got to be flexible to things, you know, changing up, um, people coming out of the woodwork. And I think that's – I know there's a lot of frustration out there with our, you know, our binge culture with streaming and podcasts that you want it and you want it now. But sometimes you need things – you need that weekly drop to improve the product and give a chance for that, you know, that dynamic feel that, you know, this is happening in real time. So-and-so has come forward and – you know, I think that's been a good strength of podcasts that drop like that. And, you know, the Teacher's Pet you mentioned before certainly benefited from, you know, people coming out of the woodwork and stuff with, with publicity. I've got a couple of golden rules, really, when you're starting out and when you know that you might have enough, like, to do a podcast. So you've got to do a lot of, I think, preliminary work. And as a, a phrase, sort of off-coined, is you've got to secure your talent. Okay, so that means you've got to get buy-in. You've got to know that there's people who are from a number of perspectives on this story are going to play ball and, and participate. So you've got nothing if you don't have them. No one wants to listen to me read press clippings or, you know, Wikipedia. You want the people who lived it to talk, don't you? That's what's entertaining. So get them and then then once you've got them and you've started to understand what the storylines are, um, this is probably the next most important thing is you've got to get in a room with the couple of people you trust and you just basically whiteboard or butcher's paper on the wall sweat it out and sweat out that story arc for two days and then you know we we do that in in all of the podcasts i've done and that makes the writing process so much easier because you've got after a lot of blood sweat and tears and coffee you know you've got your bible you sort of know where things are landing and when to give when to take all of that sort of stuff um, and so in the writing process, which happens, I'll go away with that Bible and then, you know, come out with a, a script basically for the first episode, which I'll share for comment with the two or three other people um, involved in that. You know, they're there because they've got good suggestions and, and insights I don't have. You take that into account and you polish it and you go and record it. And then what we do is we record it, we listen Sometimes things that look good on paper don't sound that great. So we go back and we change it and we record it again. So it's quite laborious, um, but we've got, perhaps got the luxury of time and, and, you know, I'm pretty finicky. I like to put out things with, 
you know, higher production values. So you've got the concept, you've got the buy-in, you've got the characters basically lined up. Who do you have to pitch it to? What happens next? Okay, so internally, it's it's obviously a big uh, commitment of resources because um, pretty much if I sign on to do one of these, it takes me out full time for four to six months. You know, you get the odd, you'll do the odd other thing, but but it's it's pretty intense. You need the travel budget if you need to travel. You've got your EP, and then you know your our consultants who you know, I've worked with Siobhan, who I mentioned before, and Kate Cole Adams, who's a former Age colleague and just a, a genius on story structure and and things like that. And any any aspiring podcast makers out there who want to you know really learn from someone about crafting their words and things Kate's just she's the best I've worked with like that and Rachel Dexter is a friend and colleague at the agent she was an EP of Pong Su and also producer on Wrong Skin and came out with me Bush and did a lot of recording there so you got it you, you get your little team and you get your editorial or management support obviously for the resources to build that team one of the criticisms or question marks about podcasting and particularly podcasting in big media companies is does it make any money well yeah it builds you an audience but does it make any money so i wanted to prove it could make money so i went out and got a a sponsor as well and saw some synergy with the great ocean road and drugs and things like that and went to victoria's transport accident commission which obviously does a lot of campaigning on you know safe driving not driving under the influence of drugs all that sort of stuff and said there's some really good synergy here I know you do a lot of advertising in print and radio and TV. Why don't you try a podcast for something different? And so brought that to the table and, you know, then our commercial guys sort of did the, you know, all the all the fiddly stuff with that, but sort of found that synergy and that brought in revenue to make the, you know, make it a profitable enterprise, which is I was really pleased that, you know, we were able to do that and prove a point. And then, then you just get doing that's it. Once you get your sign off, you know, from editorial above and and I think now there's not so much resistance perhaps as in the past where people were still a bit, mm, they know podcasting's going to be, you know, it's a space any serious media company has to be in and if you're going to be in it, you may as well do it well. Uh, and obviously these big, you know, the big multi-episode ones are an expense but... I think the audience really likes it and, I, you know, I'd be hopeful um, with, you know, restrictions lifting around Australia and things getting back to relative normality that, you know, next year we can um, try and embark on, on bringing something else to the table. Was that a first at Fairfax that you going out and getting the sponsor and getting the funding? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's tremendous. What do you think the role is of podcasts at Fairfax? Well, they've clearly this year there's clearly been um, a pretty good strategy put in place where they're building the stable. So we've got the you know the Please Explain podcast, which I think delivered really well, um, and it's a good podcast on on taking people into the you know an issue of the week or or you know more than more than that during coronavirus. I think it was being pumped out daily. And so that, that's great for a bit like, I guess, the New York Times, the Daily is the standard bearer for, for that kind of stuff. And, you know, I wish we had the resources to deliver what they do because it is remarkable. But you listen to the credits on a Friday, you know, and it's 30 people on staff. Like, that's insane. Um, so we do the best we can with that. And then, obviously, you've got your, you know, Melbourne uh, AFL podcast every monday or tuesday is a must you know so that's there 
they've got the the streaming and television stuff um and john sylvester you know our our doyen crime writer who's just a great um raconteur you know he's got 40 years worth of stories in him and journalism experience is has put out his series this year as well um, based off his column naked city and that's been really successful too so that sort of delivers to the true crime people out there in, in sort of 30 minute chunks or so um and then strategy wise yeah i still think you know we need to still make sure while we've got those um weekly things that are perhaps um you know cheaper and easier to produce um and and deliver an audience i i still think we've got to you know aim high and really keep pushing when the story's right or when we've got the right you know the right mix there for a longer form one keep pushing our journalism that way i think we should be making this is just me speaking personally i think we should be um, making more use of our tie-up through nine now with um, Stan as well and looking to do some documentary work with them um, and provide a new sort of way of doing um, investigations or, or current affairs or, or narrative journalism um, through that medium that doesn't fit that 45-minute four corners or 60-minutes mould. Not that there's anything wrong with those that both great programs, but I think the beauty of streaming is actually pushing the boundaries and trying to do it in different ways. And, um, you know, I, I've made it no secret that that would be something I'd be interested in doing um, and that I think we should be doing as an organisation as well as our podcast. Have you started to think and, and put forward any ideas of how that might work and how you could transition? Or are there any synergies, I suppose, that you see with releasing something like the Pongsu getting an audience and then saying, okay, maybe there's a bigger audience for this or we can do something a bit more with this story. It's got a lot of support. Yeah, no, I have put thought into that. And you see a story like Pong Su doesn't have to limit itself to to documentary relying on footage. You could, um, you know, theoretically, you could, um, you know, turn it into a based on thing and actually dramatise elements of it as well. Um, so, you know, that's a... That's a a possibility there no, but, but that's just an example i think you could do that with a lot of um journalism and i think we we, we it's no secret not you know underbelly 10 years ago or whenever it was did that you know on the gangland wars and did it did it really well um so yeah i, I think we can i just think, I, I don't think we should be putting limits on ourselves um but that's going to require you know a lot more um cohesion uh, i guess at different levels of the company and and working out how it could work because you, you don't want to go in and um, misfire or, you know, get halfway through and go, oh, actually, this isn't the right story or the right vehicle for that. But, um, yeah, I just think that that's the next sort of frontier for Australian journalism. And, and I think people are really finding um, time in their lives for good narrative journalism and, and longer form, um, despite everyone being so busy and, you know, uh, life being um, pretty hectic. I think, uh, you know, what you just look at look at our own habits. We make time for podcasts that we like and we make time to watch something on Netflix or whatever. So why wouldn't we, when we've got the right stuff with our journalism, bring it to those audiences as well? That's just a natural evolution. You're quite close to it already. I mean, you used actors, you did transcripts using voiceover actors and uh, translation in the Pongsu. 
Yeah, well, we had. Yeah, that's right. We had to. Um, we had to d- use those techniques to to tell the story. Obviously, because the languages on the listening devices were uh, were a fusion of different um, dialects. So the actors were great. They were really talented. And you look, we tried stuff even with the poetry readings at the start. It was you know, could be perceived as a bit wanky or whatever. But we just wanted to do something different to frame an episode, you know, and and sort of just get people thinking oh what's this about you know and I can see if they can marry back what the episode was about to what the you know the little verse was at the start probably you know wouldn't do it again because it's been we've done it and but yeah I like trying different things I think it's um it's good to to forge your own path on this sort of stuff you mentioned you've got a team around you but when you're going out and doing the interviews is it still you just going out with a microphone and a recorder or is there more involved most of the time it would be me and a producer like so for example rach um would do it mainly just to pick up on the one i'm not really great with technology and so there's a fair chance i could go out and come back with nothing uh or white noise or something and secondly yeah it it allows me to focus on the conversation and just get that because I think a real skill or talent that makes podcasting great is if you can get people not talking like they're being interviewed by a journalist it's you you want to get them telling you a story like they would over a coffee or down at the pub so they're relaxed and things like that but if I'm there with earphones on and microphones and things and go oh, hang on a minute and checking this that makes it really formal and makes me less approachable or relatable so I actually like having someone else to worry about that and really make the recording process almost non-existent in their own mind but sometimes there are occasions where I've just you know I've got one shot and this person's decided to talk and I'm there and I'll just put my iPhone down and obviously ask if I can record it and set about doing that and and it works pretty well you know the audio quality is pretty good and bring that home and you know we 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 put that in, but yeah, generally um, it's a it's a two person two person show. And also, um, I found this back doing back in the days when I was doing the rural round, having that extra person there and that other personality can sometimes help people relax too. And you know, like so for yeah, Rachel's great with people and disarming, and you know, people warm to her. And then uh, when I was doing wrong skin for my first sort of nine or ten days up in the Kimberley. A guy called Tim Young, who also worked on Phoebe's Fall, who's, who's really good with audio and stuff. He's a Canadian and, you know, from a very cold part of Canada. And so taking him up to the Kimberley was uh, a real shock to the system for, for Tim. But Pretty funny for everyone up there as well, I imagine. Yeah, it was. Yeah, they loved him. They loved his accent and, uh, and all of that. So that was just, you know, it was and fun. And it's fun, you know, you had long days driving around by yourself up there. Yeah, so I like going out with with another person at least, it, yeah, for all those reasons. How do you think your craft has changed between, you know, Phoebe's Fall, your first one, then into Wrong Skin and now to Pong Su? What have you picked up along each? Yeah, so probably the writing stuff is, is what I've learned the most, which is just about less is more. Um, you know, don't write long slabs of narration for yourself if you don't have to, but sometimes you do have to set the scene. So then it's important to think, okay, creatively, how can we build this with some music or um, some, you know, different sound effects? Um, I'm big on natural sounds, so getting out into nature. And then when you've got a character that says something, let them say it. So just, you know, just throw to that and 
let that go there. And sometimes a bit of silence doesn't hurt either. So just even in your interviewing, leave a pause at the end of a question and, and let that silence sort of marinate. You talk about stories and you know finding your stories, the three that you've done so far. Working at The Age, which has been around for you know well over a century, is there just this backlog of stories there that people are combing through trying to find something that might make the next great podcast? Yeah, there, there, I mean, there is an infinite number of stories out there that deserve to be told. And again, it's just a matter of, I guess, asking those, you know, those crucial questions. Um, why, why am I doing this? Um, what's, what are we hoping to achieve? Are we just telling a good yarn? That's great. Um, but is there more to it? And then what talent can we bring to the table? So it's not just you talking. How do we bring it to life? You know, how do we get voices in there? So they're the key things when you are going back or if you're combing older older things. And that's why older things are good because there is that archive and there's that build-up of material. But it's also, you know, it's great if you can find a contemporary thing as well and, and bring that out. But often these things are hard because those stories with, um, you know, a bit to them are often going through a court process or something where you can't, you know, come in halfway and, and ruin everything. When you talk about the characters... If people have been captured in print before, it's a bit hard to tell if they've got you know the chops or they're going to sound great. I mean, all the characters that you speak, or the or the people rather that you talk to along the way, they've all got their own little stories and eccentricities. Did you do a little bit of of pre work before to have a chat to them and see if they're good talent? Yeah, well, you ring people, you ring people up, or you you sit down with them, and you know, I often like to meet people face to face and just ask, "This is what we're doing. Do you want to be involved? This is how it would work." Um, but no, characters are characters and like, that's just, you know, what you see is what you get. I mean, and like Dickie Davey in the, in the Pong Sioux, that was him just talking at the pub, you know, that's, that's Dick, um, that's how he is. So there's a, yeah, use a bit of that audio to give people a, I guess it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a refreshing sort of break from sort of, you know, serious stuff, but there's, that's one of the great things about podcasts. There is those characters out there in wrong skin. We had a guy called Froggy Finger, um, you know, another classic character up there. Just it's how he is, and he speaks like that's how that's that's who he is. That's how he is, and um, yeah, they're they're a delight. I you know I love coming across characters like that. They they make um, the product special and, and a contrast often to the voices you hear, whether it be police or lawyers that perhaps more careful about how they speak. And, uh, these guys just shoot from the hip and, you know, I I love them for it. So there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful part in the, um, Pong Su podcast where you play the audio of yourself asking the most stupid question you've ever asked in your journalist career. In your words. In your words. words. Was that your decision to put that in? So we left that in, uh, that that long silence when I asked that question. I think I was asking the guy from the United Nations if he feared for his safety when he was doing these reports on um, North Korea's, uh, you know, sanctions busting and all their methods of illegal shipping and whatnot. And he just had this long silence and then sort of said, what do you think? And we liked it because I like silence in there. And it also, um, it made his, and he's got a quite a spooky kind of deep voice too. So it sounded pretty cool. 
And it's good just to give the audience an insight into, you know, you can be a journalist of 20 years and still ask a pretty dumb, obvious question. Um, but it was a dumb, obvious question that got a really good answer for a podcast format. Um, it wasn't by design, but it turned out that way. And, yeah, I'm not scared to, you know, to share those moments where you're not um, perhaps on the top of your probing question game or whatever, but it doesn't have to be. And I think it's important for the, the host or the journey to be relatively relatable as well. Um, and just you're just another, you're just a dude trying to do his job. Yeah, what's and all, put it in if you can. If, it's, if it works, if it leads to something, which it did, that was great. Um, all right, well, look, I think with the technical difficulties and everything that we're having over this side, talking about professionalism, we, uh, we usually just end up by talking a little bit about podcasts that you're into. So we're wondering, if would you be able to tell us maybe three podcasts that you're currently listening to or you'd recommend to others? Oh, I listen every Wednesday. My favorite podcast at the moment is I listen to Script Notes, which is by um, two really good screenwriters in California. Um, uh, the guy who did Chernobyl and um, John August, who's written a lot of stuff as well. Um, I love them. They're, they're spot on for storytelling and um, making great, well, they make great television and, and a good podcast. So I listened to Daily, as I said before, the New York Times, and I thought it was particularly great during the um, US election and getting out and talking to Americans about the electoral process and voting and, and all of those kinds of things. So for me, that's that's a must. And the other guilty pleasure, and this isn't a podcast, but it's something I'm really looking forward to, is I love listening to Test Cricket on the radio. And I can't wait for that to start over summer. Unreal. This is one we haven't heard yet, so that's fantastic. <laughs> Maybe a little bit away from the format we're doing, but it is the ultimate in Australian audio, I suppose. Oh, it's just so relaxing. It's just at the beach, nothing beats it. For me, anyway. Well, that's when the heavens really opened and we had to cut the interview short. I've got to say, it was one of the biggest electrical storms I've ever heard and I really appreciate Richard for being so patient as it cut out several times over the interview. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Richard Baker. Again, apologies for the audio failure. Links to The Last Voyage of the Pong Su and Richard's other podcasts are in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Behind the Podcast.